if you would please open up your Bibles to Daniel chapter 3. Um, tonight, uh, before we get started, I just want to remind us of where we are and, and what's happening. Um, first, if anyone had any questions and noticed my hair was a little shorter, I just wanted to answer that by saying that, um, no, I did not lose a wager. Um, I, I had intended to cut my hair, just not quite this short. So, uh, praise the Lord that hair grows back. Um, we're going through the book of Daniel right now, and some of you will recognize the beginning of this story. You know, the beginning of this story is one that many of us are familiar with. In fact, if you grew up going to church of any kind, really, any sort of Christian church or, or Catholic church, um, any sort of tradition, of Protestant or Catholic or evangelical, I mean, odds are we've heard this story, that, that people know the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. That there is this great story of these three men who refused to bow down to the gold statue. And, and, and this is what this story is about. I titled it Gold, Fire, and Praise, but we have this golden statue, we have this fire which represents suffering, and then we have praise and worship. But it's kind of like the last couple of weeks with this king, this King Nebuchadnezzar in this story as we keep going. It's never, he never quite gets it. And I was thinking about this, and, and you know, there's a lot to this story, but I think ultimately in life, when we look at what we're looking for and what we want, we want contentment. I mean, above all else, right? We talk about it, we want love, we want joy, we want all these things, but we really just sort of want contentment, to not be anxious, to not be fearful, to just be able to say, yes, I am content, I am good, I am happy, I am good with where I'm at. You know, and the Bible oftentimes talks about these huge, big things uh, about praising God and worshiping the throne of God and these sort of big things that are hard for us to grasp. And we sort of wonder, why doesn't it have more practical knowledge about how to just be content with where we are? At least I do. You know, this is something I've always gone through. I remember being 23 years old and and talking to a mentor of mine and just asking, how do I be a normal 23-year-old? I mean, how can I just be normal? I don't want to stand out. I don't want to be in prison. I just sort of want to be in the middle. You know, that that meaty part of the bell curve. I just want to be normal. I want to be content. And I read this story, and this story, um, there's a couple of stories in the Bible that have had a profound impact on my spirituality. One is the story of David and Abigail uh, in 1 Samuel 25, which I absolutely love. Uh, Another one is the conversion of the Apostle Paul. Um, And this might be right up there with one of my favorite narratives in the Bible that's had a profound impact on me. And I've never been ordered to be thrown into a fire, but I think, as many of us realize, that we've never maybe been expressly, you know, threatened with death, but there's much we can learn from this story. And so what we're going to do is this. We'll discuss the first half, which Lars, our elder, our evening worship elder, already read, And then we'll read the second half and talk about it together. So I just want to talk about the first 15 verses quickly here. So in in Daniel chapter 3, verse 1, Nebuchadnezzar sets up this giant statue. About 30 meters, 60 cubits, if that's your preferred unit of measure. Um, in, In our Bibles here it says feet. Either way, it was pretty big. And he sets it up and he says, hey, here's what we're going to do. We're going to put it in this field and we're going to bring together all the officials to see it. And they're all going to bow down. And and it's almost like Nebuchadnezzar, if you remember chapter 2, is sort of pretending this dream never even happened. 
He had this dream, if you remember, where the top of the statue was gold, but then it was silver and bronze and iron and clay, and it, it sort of talked about how Nebuchadnezzar would lose his kingdom and that these other kingdoms would come. And he sort of says to God and thinking to himself, you know, let's just pretend that whole dream never happened. Let's just build the whole statue out of gold, and let's let everyone look at me and how great I am. And let's just pretend I'm never going to lose power. So he gets everyone together, and then says through verses 4 to 7, hey, we're all going to bow down to this statue. We're all going to worship this. You know, and I just sort of wonder, you know, if you were watching this movie, you know, Pastor Andy this morning talked story, sort of about stories and about movies and about how Scripture, he's going through the book of Ruth in the, in the morning services. And if you look at Scripture, these stories we read are really dramatic. And you can kind of see this Nebuchadnezzar guy not really getting it. You know, in chapter 1, Daniel and his friends eat this healthier diet, and they stand out above the rest. And they should say, wow, there's something to this Hebrew God, but he doesn't listen. And then in chapter 2, Daniel, through prayer to God, reveals this amazing dream to the king, and the king sort of still doesn't get it. And here he is basically saying, no, I see this God has some power, I see this God has some wisdom, but I want nothing to do with that. Maybe it was arrogance, maybe it was stupidity, maybe it was fear of losing everything he had built up. You know, it wasn't so odd at the time that kings and emperors would consider themselves gods. But whatever the point was, I don't think God was speaking to Nebuchadnezzar so that he would set up a gold statue. I don't think God had Daniel interpret the dream so that this would happen. He decides this king to go and do whatever he wanted, and that was to build himself up. Which, when you think about contentment, is something we often do, isn't it? We sort of build ourselves up. We sort of hedge ourselves in so that we think, oh, maybe this will do it. But we see in the story our friends not worshiping. In verses 8 through 12, other officials, these astrologers, go and they notice the Jews aren't bowing. You think, why why single them out? Why would they, like, rat on them? Why would they tell on them, you know? It's like, he's not doing it, he's not doing it. Well, were you bowing? Because then how else would you notice, you know? That's what I would have said. But These guys are technically breaking the law, but it's not like the king noticed. If you think about it, these Hebrews... Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were probably not real popular. They're outsiders, they're foreigners, and they've rose to the highest ranks in this kingdom. And my guess is, and if you read, it sort of leans to this as well, that people were looking for a way to knock them down a few pegs. You know, because when they go to the king and sort of tell on him in verses 8 to 12, they don't just say you weren't bowing down. They add a little embellishment, don't they? They add a little energy to it. They say, hey, these people aren't bowing down. They don't even pay attention to you, king. They don't care about what you say. They're bad at their jobs. They're not helping your kingdom. And it works. It works. In verse 13, it says the king's furious. And in verse 14 and 15, he gives them another chance, though. He says, okay, you three, here's what we have. We have this statue, and you have a choice. You know, he says, you can either bow down now, basically, or you can die. He, he, he phrases it exactly like that. If you're ready to fall down and worship the image I made, very good. But if you do not worship, you will be thrown immediately into this furnace. Now, when we see this, it's kind of a, a fascinating, fascinating text and a fascinating lead up to the story because many of us know what happens. But look at verse 15 one more time. It says, if I decide to do this to you, what God could save you? 
You know, if you go back to Daniel chapter 2, we see in Daniel chapter 2 that Nebuchadnezzar actually honors God in verse 47. He says that God is the God of gods and the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And the word he uses, this book was written in Aramaic, which is sort of a Babylonian language, but the word he uses is very honoring and high. He knows these people are Hebrew. He knows who they are, but for some reason, he still isn't getting it, and he sort of says to these people, so what God could ever save you? I mean, you, you don't have any option here. No one could save you. For some reason, Nebuchadnezzar has not connected that these people worship the same God as Daniel, who he just miraculously said he's the king of kings. And it's amazing to me, too, and actually this is a question we don't know the answer to. I wish we knew why Daniel wasn't in this story. Have you ever wondered that if you've read this before? Why isn't Daniel there? Was Daniel exempt? I heard two things. One person, as actually, I was reading about all this stuff this week, and one person believes Daniel might have been like out on an errand while this was happening, so just conveniently not there, um, which is kind of cool. But another one I was reading thought maybe Nebuchadnezzar, because Daniel had just done this great miracle, sort of made him exempt. And basically said, listen, you can do what you need to do. You, I trust you, I, you know, all this other stuff. But these guys hadn't proved themselves yet. You know, these guys hadn't had their God stand up for them yet, so why should he give them special treatment just because they say they worship this Hebrew God? We don't really know the answer. But we know that this is the situation we find ourselves. You know, I wonder sometimes... Like I said, what made Nebuchadnezzar do this? What makes a king, what makes a person so fearful that people will not be uniform? You know, when I think about contentment, when I think about what God is showing us and how we grow in God, these are the things that come out. Fear, pride, maybe even our arrogance. That we become blinded to this unknown future. We become blinded and we get so narrow Think about this king. He was so narrow that even though he, he trusted these three guys, he had risen them to these high positions of power. They had shown wisdom. They had shown, you know, intelligence. They had been hardworking. He still says, no, I am going to throw you into the fire and kill you just because you won't bow down to this statue. You know, when we're fearful of what's going to happen in the future, we can miss a lot of what God is doing when we're unsure of what God is going to do and and, and it consumes our life and we're afraid of losing power or status, we can miss a lot of what God is doing. So here we come to part two. This King Nebuchadnezzar has seen that there is this powerful God but does not want to relinquish his control. And so we have sort of a face-off, right? The story is building between Nebuchadnezzar and our God. So starting in verse 16, we'll read through to verse 30. It says this, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to save us from it, and he will rescue us from your hand, O king. But even if he does not, we want you to know, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar was furious with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and his attitude toward them changed. He ordered the furnace heated seven times hotter than usual. 
He commanded some of the strongest soldiers in his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and throw them into the blazing furnace. So these men, wearing their robes, trousers, turbans, and other clothes, were bound and thrown into the blazing furnace. The king's command was so urgent and the furnace so hot that the flames of the fire killed the soldiers who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, firmly tied, fell into the blazing furnace. And then King Nebuchadnezzar leapt to his feet in amazement and asked his advisors, weren't there three men that we tied up and threw into the fire? They replied, certainly, O king. He said, look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed. And the fourth looks like a son of the gods. Nebuchadnezzar then approached the opening of the blazing furnace and shouted, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out, come here. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire, and the satraps, prefects, governors, and royal advisors crowded around them. They saw that the fire had not harmed their bodies, nor was the hair of their head singed. Their robes were not scorched, and there was no smell of fire on them. And then Nebuchadnezzar said, Praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and rescued his servants. They trusted in him and defied the king's command and were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any god except their own god. Therefore I decree that the people of any nation or language who say anything against the god of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to be cut into pieces and their houses will be turned into piles of rubble. For no other god can save in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. So, this passage is just fantastic. This passage is fantastic for a lot of reasons. In fact, it's so popular. I don't know if you know this or not. I mean, not all of you may be um, hip-hop fans, but there's a popular rap group called the Beastie Boys from the 80s and 90s. They actually have a song called Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. This story is so well known. People always argue. It's amazing to me. People always argue that the Old Testament is full of stories about how we have this vindictive God who punishes his people and, and, and is this sort of like old man in the sky with the big beard, you know, wagging his finger at us. But when you look at this scripture, look at verse 18. I mean, this is sort of the crux of the passage that we're going to come back to, but I just want you to see the faith behind this statement. But even if he doesn't, King, who, by the way, you have the power to throw us into this horrible furnace. We want you to know that we're not going to do it. We believe in in a God we can't always define. We believe in a God we can't always put limits on. But let me tell you something. The Old Testament, the New Testament, what we believe in and why we are here is a system based on faith. We have to believe. And because of the belief of these three men, the king gets angry. In fact, it says he was furious. And so they heat it up really, really, really hot. (laughs) And they go to throw these men in so that there would be death for their actions. There would be consequences for their actions. And there is death, but it's not his, or it's not Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. In fact, it's the king's men who burn up from being so close to these flames. And what's amazing, and this is where the, the miracle happens, Verse 24, weren't there three men that we tied up and threw in the fire? It says there's four men, and one of them looks like the son of the gods. Now there's, just so you guys know, theologically, when we study the Bible, there's two things this could be. There is a a wonderful word called a Christophany, which basically means an appearance of Christ in the Old Testament. Um, 
And this could be a Christophany. This could be an appearance of, of the personhood of Jesus Christ miraculously in the Old Testament. It could also be an angel sent to protect them. We know that God uses both. That God not only gives, sends himself to protect and also sends angels to protect his servants. It is not clear. Uh, a couple of verses later, the king says that he had sent this angel to help them. But if you've ever read uh, the book of Isaiah, or um, I just want to read you one passage that is just absolutely wonderful. In Isaiah chapter 43, uh, you don't need to turn there, I'm just going to read one verse. Isaiah chapter 43, he says, When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. When you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. For I am the Lord your God. You know, God makes us a promise that he cares for us, and either way, we see it here. You know, I want to encourage you. If um, There was a lot of things I wanted to use to sort of give an example to this point, and I don't have time to show a clip of it tonight, uh, but there's this movie called The End of the Spear, and if you've never seen it, it's a story of uh, missionaries who were killed in Ecuador in the 50s. It's a famous story. Many people have probably heard it. But one of the things it talks about is when, after these people killed these missionaries, they talk about how they saw this whole host of angels, like heavenly beings. And the people who did it actually are the ones who confess to their wives and children that they killed their husbands. And it's a fantastic story about God actually not protecting his people, but still being glorified. Uh, It's called End of the Spear. It's a great movie. But I just want to point this out to you that when we read this passage, whether this was an angel or whether this was the presence of Jesus, this is proof that God is with us. This is proof that God cares for us, that God cared for his servants. And then at the end, we see what Nebuchadnezzar's response was. He calls him, finally, the Most High God. Servants of the Most High God. He switches his script from verse 15 where he just uses any God. What God could save you? He says, no, you are servants of the Most High God. And then Nebuchadnezzar, we think, should worship? He says, praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who sent his angel and rescued his servants. But we don't see any turn. You know, he says there's nothing in here about his repentance or turning. And actually, in the next chapter, we're going to find out that God finally breaks through to this king. But there is no humility. There's still no worship. He almost acts like someone who's been bested. You know, like they both, him and the God of Israel sort of ran a, ran a foot race. He got beat and says, oh, well done, most high God. You know, you beat me. But there's no humility here. There's no worship He doesn't know who this God is. He just sort of respects him. This is the same thing we were talking about last week with the dream. He sees that there is this God that is powerful, that has saved miraculously these three men, and he still sort of sits back and says, that's great. That's great for you and your people. I mean, look at his response. If anyone says anything against this God, I'll chop him to pieces. Now, that's cool. That's great. But he still doesn't know this God. He doesn't bow down and worship this God. He doesn't say, teach me about this God. He doesn't say, hey, let's tear down the gold statue and have everyone else worship this God. He just sits back and says, oh, wow, that's interesting. And so this is a question I ask youth all the time. This is a question I ask friends all the time. You know, I I just had a conversation just this last week with some people about this. There's a difference between knowing about God and knowing God. See, Nebuchadnezzar is beginning to know about God, but he still doesn't know God. You know, and I want to show you guys something really quickly. 
Um, everyone has an opinion on God and who God is. You know, I don't know if you've ever asked anyone who you think God is who's not a Christian. You get a great range of answers. And this is sort of a popular thing some churches do in the U.S. where they go around and just stick a microphone in people's faces and ask them. So I want to show you this short video. Uh, it's from California, I think, and, um, which you know, makes it even better because people are crazy. Um, but I just want you to see some of the responses to people when they're asked, you know, who do you think or what is God like? me, but a better version of me. Um, here's the thing. One, people are so non-committal about talking about God, it just makes me laugh. But people have no idea who this God is. People have no idea. I mean, yeah, sure, people hear things about love, and, and, and they say these things, but do they really understand who this God is and what this God has done for his people? You know, God is this amazing, loving God who loves and cares for us when things are going well, in the gold times, in the fire times, when things are hard, and when we praise him. Are we willing to praise God no matter what we go through? See, and this is the important thing about knowing God. If we know God, then we can praise him no matter what is happening around us. If we know who this God is intimately and deeply, then we can praise him no matter what. Whereas in this story, these people are like, yeah, you know, the king respects God, he's all-powerful, that's great, but it doesn't lead him to worship. See, when we begin to understand who God is and we see God working, it leads us to a state of worship and praise that we've never had before. When, when we just desire to, to, to gain knowledge about God and to gain information about God without actually knowing God, it leads to uncertainty. You know, I don't know if this is the key to Christianity, but I think it's pretty close. I think verse 18 is about as close as it gets to understanding what contentment is. Even if he does not. Can we say that confidently? Can I say that, yes, God wants good things for me, and God wants me to have a nice job and to have all of these things, but even if he doesn't, I know that God is still the God of the universe, and he loves me. I want to show you this picture um, I, I put a picture in at the, at the end of the slideshow. Yeah. So this is a, actually a church that, that was burned down. But if you look at this picture on the left, this is when we're used to worshiping God, when things are going well, when we're happy, when we're at church, everything's great. But what happens when everything gets destroyed and the roof collapses? Are we still willing to worship God? I mean, think about that as an image for life. Are we still willing, even if God doesn't intervene and the fire destroys, even if he does not save the physical, even if we died, would we still know and believe that he is Lord of all? Do you still know and believe that he is Lord of all? And the way this has really become real for me is this word, that is used in different disciplines. In, uh, it's used in architecture, it's used in psychology, it's used in a lot of different things. Um, but follow me, and some of you may have heard this before, this term liminal space. Has anyone ever heard this before, liminal space? Liminal space is like a, the space in between two things, right? So liminal space is like a doorway or a threshold or a hallway. Um, think about it in the sense of a, a building where it'd be weird if someone was hanging out, you know? <laughs> Like, you're walking down the staircase and someone's just standing there. You know, this is, this is weird. This is a transitional time. It's not a place where we sit, okay? 
I want you to think about this, and, and maybe this doesn't make sense to you, but for me, this has made a huge impact in my faith. When I think about growing, when I think about becoming stronger in faith, when I think about growing in what we call sanctification, I think about sitting in this idea of liminal space in these in-between times, because that's where we are. We're on the threshold to something new, but we're not there yet. We believe Jesus loves us. We believe we've been saved. We've been promised heaven at some point. But here we are in this liminal space sort of waiting, sort of in transition, sort of wondering when we're going to get there. We're on the threshold of something amazing, but we're just not there yet. And this is where this idea of faith becomes so important. Do we know we'll get there? When we talk about Christian contentment, when we talk about being okay in all circumstances, when we talk about being strong enough and brave enough to say this out loud, even if he doesn't, I will not. Contentment in life and faith in belief is about trusting God in the unknown. It's about trusting God in these liminal spaces where we're not sure what's going to happen, and that's okay. Because we know that God is with us here and now. And that the next part will come when the next part comes. See, trusting God with the good is easy. Right? Things are going well. I just got a big bonus. Praise God. I'll tithe a bunch of it and feel great about myself. And even when things are kind of hard, it's actually kind of easy to praise God because we know we need help and we go to church and we're broken. But what about those in-between times? See, this is where the spiritual growth really takes place. This is where we, we begin to solidify our faith in the normal day-to-day that God must rule all of those times of our life. And what's amazing is while God's working inside of us as we trust God, God is going out and seeking out after other people. If you read this story, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are trusting God with their very lives. And because of it, God is using them to see the power and the love he has. God is chasing after this king so that he would know that he loves him. He's revealing himself through miracles in his faithful servants, servants who are willing to show God's goodness in the midst of hardship, servants who are willing to show God's goodness when things are going well. And this is how great our God is, is he uses our efforts to draw people to him. He uses your faith and your belief to draw people to him. If we allow God to rule in all times, when things are good, when things are bad, if we trust in God at all times to say this prayer that even if God doesn't change this, I will still praise him. Even if God doesn't heal this infirmity, I will still praise him. Even if God takes this person's life, I know that God has a plan and God is good. Because our belief as Christians, if we want to grow, if we want to be strong, hear this. Our belief is not dictated by circumstances. Our belief is put into action by circumstances. The things around us are the things that give us an opportunity to share what we know of God. The things that give us the opportunity to live our faith out. In chapter 4, If you want to sneak ahead, you can this week, and you'll see how God finally gets a hold of King Nebuchadnezzar. He does not go silently. (laughs) But in our story, in your life, what do we want? Yeah, it'd be great if we all had circumstantial safety. It'd be great if we all had the answer to all of our prayers. But that may not be God's plan. 
I really believe the key to Christian contentment in this life is verse 18, Daniel 3.18. God, I want this. But even if you don't, I will still praise you. God, I want you to answer this prayer request, but even if you don't, I will still praise you. God, I don't want this person to die, but even if they do, I will still praise you. God, I, I really don't want to lose this person. I really want to keep this job. I really want this other dream job, but even if you don't, I will still praise you. I won't turn away. And what's amazing about this is when you do this, not only is your faith strengthened, not only are you growing in God, but then the people around you are seeing someone. The people around you are seeing someone who believes and is strong in their faith, and God is being revealed the same way King Nebuchadnezzar saw Christ or an angel in that fire. They'll see Christ in you. This is what the Apostle Paul was talking about with the hope of glory. That we are in a liminal space and we are not there yet, but as we wait for things to come, we can trust God because growth in God is not only changing our behaviors and becoming more faithful, it's also sometimes growth in God is just contentment and being okay waiting and saying, even if he doesn't, I will praise him still. Would you please pray with me? Lord God, I thank you for these three men and their faith. Lord, I thank you for all those who have made that same statement, God. Lord, I pray that we would all have the strength to say that at some point in our lives. To trust you in the uncertainty, to trust you in the in-between, God. To trust you in the transitions. Lord, give us courage. Lord, we love you. We know we love you. We know you love us. Give us courage to live out that love to stand firm in our belief, today, tomorrow, and forevermore. Amen.